The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Let's bow our heads in prayer together. Oh Lord, may we never boast of anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're here today because of that cross. We're rescued from sin because of that cross. So teach us what that means to live a life that's centered in the cross of Jesus. Teach us to live lives of freedom because of that. Teach us to live lives free from the anxiety of earthly things. That anxiety that many of us have brought into this place today because of what's going on in our lives. May we live lives free from those earthly things that cause struggle and pain in our lives. Weigh us down with burdens that we don't have to bear. And even as you remind us that you've placed us among things that are passing away, help us to hold tightly to those things that will never, ever pass away. Teach us, Lord, to hang on to your truth because it endures forever. Teach us, Lord, to to, 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 to grasp tightly grace, for it endures forever. Teach us, Lord, to cling to our salvation, to work it out in our lives, because it endures forever. We know government, earthly powers fade away. And they die. But your word abides forever. We're grateful that your church can come and gather and sing that word and pray that word and proclaim that word even today. So around the world, bless your church. Particularly, Lord, we pray your blessings on the persecuted church. those that are worshiping and hiding today, those that are facing death, if ever there's any hint of their worshiping you. We pray for our missionaries who may be leading those churches in dark places and ask for your strength and guidance and abundance the filling of your Holy Spirit in their lives. And use us, Lord, to pray for our missionaries, to give for their support. Bless their work. We realize, too, Lord, the church is not only persecuted, but there are many in the church who are led astray by false teaching. We pray for a revival in our land throughout the Christian world. 
a revival where pastors and preachers and elders and teachers might come back to your word. That they might stand firm. Even here, we gather with our struggles and our burdens and our griefs, and we pray that your word today might remove those things from us, that open our hearts simply to your truth, open our ears and our minds simply to your truth today as we deal with what your word tells us. We pray, Lord, that you might use that word to empower our lives as we go from this place, that we might be the witnesses you've called us to be. And we promise to give you all the praise and glory for that. Bless our preacher as he proclaims that word. Speak through him your truths, timeless truths, Lord. We can carry with us every day. And that can change our lives. For your glory. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. First Peter chapter 2. That's where we are this morning. First Peter chapter 2. Verses 9 and 10. Peter writes. But you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. And that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord for us. We introduced this text last week by asking you to consider two different questions. The first question is, Who are you? And the second question is, why are you here? Or better yet, if we just make the questions corporate, who are we and why are we here? Those are questions that really are are foundational to every human being. At some point, I think everyone at some point contemplates those questions. Who am I? What makes me me? What is the, the root foundational rock of my identity? Who am I? And then secondarily, what am I here for? What purpose do I serve? What, what, what reason am I on this earth? What purpose is there for my existence? Why is it that I wake up in the morning and do what I do? Why is it that I breathe the air every day? And why is it that I go through the routine I go through? What is it that I've been set out to do here? Who am I? And why am I here? Or put more simply, the, the issue of identity and the issue of mission. What's my identity and what's my mission? Now, when we look around the culture uh, around us, we read and we watch and we listen to people talk and we read what they write, and we can easily observe that people around us answer those questions in very vastly different ways, right? When it comes to the issue of identity, who is it that you are? What is it that, that makes you you? There are folks who, who anchor their identity in all sorts of things. There are people who uh, anchor their identity and their popularity. All you have to do is look at the pop culture around us, right? Music stars, uh, people on the movie screen, people that we see on television. You begin to listen to what they say and you begin to watch their lives. Oftentimes you see that their lives just are anchored in what they do, their career, their popularity or their fame. And you begin to see that very vividly when their fame begins to do what? 
And it begins to wane. And it begins to fade away. And all of a sudden, they're not on the A list for the next movie. They're on the B list. And they move from the B list to the C list. And all of a sudden, they don't know how to live. They can't figure out what to do with their lives because their whole identity was wrapped up in their fame and in their popularity and in their ability to act or sing or whatever. And so you end up with people who struggle to figure out who they are late in life. Oftentimes, resorting to drugs and alcohol, even in many cases, taking their own lives because their identity has been snatched away because it was all wrapped up in their fame. There are folks whose identity is anchored in their beauty, right? You don't have to look hard to see that. Like Pastor Frank over here, for instance. Um, beauty, yeah, you got an amen on that, Pastor Frank. That's amazing. Um, but there are. We, we look, look, I mean, you can look around. That's not us, right? We're not the folks whose identities are anchored in our beauty. But there are folks, there are folks whose, whose whole life revolves around the way they look. And their whole life is revolving around their making sure that they continue to look the same way, that they are able to maintain their beauty. The problem with having your identity anchored in your beauty is what? (laughs) Life happens. You can't stop it, but you get old, right? And however you look today, probably a month from now or a year from now, definitely five years from now, you're not going to look the same, right? Things change. I'm 43. Things have changed, right? Um, I don't look like I did when I was 23 or when I was 18. Life happens. Wrinkles happen. Hair turns different colors, right? It's not as hard to maintain those big biceps, men, right? Or those six-pack of abs. They just kind of fade away into fluff, right? That's kind of what happens. But there are people, there are people whose whole identity is anchored in how they look and their outward appearance. And so you see, as age happens, you end up with these folks who are in their 50s and 60s and 70s who are having plastic surgery after plastic surgery to where you look at them and you say, what in the world have you done to yourself? And you wonder, how do you look in the mirror and think, ooh, that's good. Why do people do that? Because their identity is wrapped up in their beauty. And they can't figure out how to live when that beauty begins to fade. And so they desperately do anything they can to try and keep it from changing, even to the point of making themselves look foolish to others. There are people whose identity is wrapped up in their wealth, right? I mean, they are who they are because of what they have. They've made a success for themselves in their career, and they've amassed a fortune in the bank, and they can wield that fortune to buy all sorts of things, fancy cars and fancy homes and all the latest gadgets and possessions, and their whole identity is wrapped up around in their wealth and their possessions. And so their life is lived primarily uh, on a trajectory that sets them on a course to do everything they can and anything they can to maintain and grow those possessions and that wealth. So some folks find their identity in their things and in their money. The problem with that is it's very hard to maintain. There are often factors outside of our control that affect our means. And so when a stock market crashes or when a pink slip comes at work and says you no longer have a job and all of a sudden the money isn't flowing or it disappears in an instant, they look in the mirror and they don't know who they are and they don't know how they'll live without it. Because their identity is wrapped up in their stuff. 
People anchor their identity in their career. It's what they do. They get up every morning and what drives them is going to work and achieving whatever it is they're achieving at work. And so they're identified or what, what anchors who they are is what they do. Also, a shifty sort of a foundation. Because again, these things can, can go quickly as they come. There are people who anchor their whole identity in the way they look or in their race. There are people whose whole life is built around and then driven by whatever race they are. They're Caucasian American, they're African American, they're Asian American, they're whatever, some other culture, some other religion, some other nation. But it's wrapped up in, in, their, in their ethnicity and their ethnic identity. And everything they say and does is driven somehow, some way by those things. People who are health nuts. Their whole identity is built on telling everybody else what they need to eat and how they need to exercise, right? So they're fitness experts. I love those people. I don't listen to them. I love them. I admire them in some sense because they can eat tofu and kale every day and somehow be all right with that. Not me. But again, fitness it comes and it fades over the years. The problem with all of those and the many other things that are foundational to people's identity in the world around us, the problem with all of those things is when life comes crashing in, when the wind starts to blow really hard in life and disaster comes your way, when you lose your job, when something happens and your wealth is affected and gone, when you're standing over a casket weeping because someone that you've dearly loved is now no longer with you, When you're in your doctor's office and your doctor says, have a seat, I've got some news that I need to share with you. And it's not good news. When those things happen in your life, all of those other anchors for identity crumble and fall around you. It's why the scriptures call us not to anchor our identity in any of those things. And it's what Peter is concerned with in 1 Peter chapter 2. He's concerned that the the people to whom he writes understand who they are at the core and what it is that they've been set in this world to do. And the reason he's writing to them to talk about that is because they are at that very moment to which he's writing, their lives are crumbling around them. Their possessions are being taken. Their careers are being snatched out from under them. And in some cases, their very lives are being threatened. And anybody who finds himself in that position might just be apt to look around and say, Maybe it's just worth giving up. And so Peter wants to encourage them. And he wants to encourage you. And he wants to encourage me. He wants to help us to see where our identity is truly anchored. And he wants us to see what it is that we've been set here to do. So that when life blows in with good days and when it blows in with bad days, when when the blessings come and when the disasters strike, we'll be able to, to be anchored firm in what really matters. And so Peter writes to address these issues. He addresses first the issue of identity, and he begins to write to these believers, and he wants them to understand who they are. And he tells them some things in the beginning of verse 9 about who they are. He says, here's who you are. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You're a people for his own possession. 
I mean, that's a mouthful of, of descriptions about who these people are at the core of, of what makes them them. And they're all, they're all phrases that Peter has pulled from the Old Testament that were used in the Old Testament to describe the nation of Israel. Peter is snatching those identity uh, descriptions from Old Testament Israel. He's transporting them into his day and now applying them to the church, to Christians, to these persecuted believers. And we looked at the first of these two identity markers last week when we started into this passage. We saw that they're a chosen race, a chosen race. If there was anything that Old Testament Israel was proud of, it was the fact that God had chosen them. And Peter says, look, just as God has chosen Israel in the Old Testament, you New Testament believers are just as much the recipients of his choosing as Israel was. The world around you may be rejecting you, but God has chosen you. The world around you may hate you. They may persecute you. They may disagree with everything that you believe, but you need to understand that's okay because at the end of the day, they're not the ones that matter. At the end of the day, what matters is where do you stand in relationship to God, and you need to understand at the core of who you are that you've been chosen by Him. You've been chosen by Him. That helps a believer who's struggling. That helps a a Christian who's being persecuted, who's not fitting in with his world around him, to understand, you know what? It's all right. It's all right. I can hang on through this because the one that matters has chosen me. Everyone else might reject me, but God has chosen me. God has chosen me. He tells him a second thing. You've been chosen. He says, you're, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. That word royal and priest, it speaks of really two different things. It speaks of the issue of access to God and the issue of representing him. He calls them royal priests. He says, look, just like priests in the Old Testament who had unique access to the inner parts of the temple and who could get closer to God than the average person could, you, as a New Testament Christian, you are a royal priest. You are a priest. You have, you have uninhibited access to Almighty God because of what Jesus has done on the cross. When he shed his blood and died on the cross, the veil of that temple was ripped, symbolizing that everyone who places their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ has direct access to God. You can go in and speak to him and know that you're heard. You can cast your cares on him because he cares for you. You don't need a priest. You don't need a pastor. You don't need some holy man to go do that on your behalf. You yourself are priests who have access to God. And on top of that, you're royal priests. You're priests that represent him to the world. You represent him. So two issues for identity for the people to whom Peter was writing and to Christians today. Chosen people, royal priests. Loved by God, chosen by him, have direct access to him, and we represent him to the world. The third thing he mentions, and we'll pick up there this morning, is in the uh, first part of chapter uh, 2, verse 9. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. A holy nation. Or a holy people. The word is ethnos, and it just translates people. You're a holy people. Again, this takes us back to the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. God uses very same phrase to speak of Israel. In Exodus chapter 19, he says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and you'll keep my covenant, you shall be what? My treasured possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests... That sounds familiar, right? And also what? A holy nation. You'll be a holy nation. An exact, the exact phrase ascribed to Israel in the Old Testament, Peter now says to New Testament Christians, to the church, you are a holy nation. 
Now, for us to understand what this means, we need to understand what he means by holy. The word holy in this particular context carries the idea of being set apart. It doesn't have necessarily specifically to do with being perfect or moral perfection. It has more to do with the issue of being set apart from the culture around us, being set apart from the greater world around us, being set apart from the world, and being set apart for God. Do you get that? So being a holy, when he says you're a a holy people or a holy nation, he's saying to them, part of your identity is you're not like the world. You've been set apart from the world. You've been set apart from something and you're being set apart to something. From the world and you're set apart to God. That's what he's talking about. And it was easy to see how this related to Old Testament Israel. When God had, had... had set Israel apart. He called them a holy nation. He had, he had called them to, to relate to him in a very unique sort of a way as his special people in the Old Testament times. And because of that, it set them apart from everyone else. I mean, Israel was a set-apart nation. What did that look like for them? Well, it looked like a lot of different things. On one hand, it looked like a unique diet, right? They didn't eat like everybody else. Not tofu and kale. But they had their own diet. And it was different than what the world around them ate. No pork. Right? No pork. No Bessinger's barbecue. None of that. It's part of their unique diet. It set them apart from the world. Their diet did. They had a, a, a unique moral code. They had a different moral code than the nations around them because God had given them His law. And He had defined for them in His law what is right and what is wrong, what is moral and what is immoral, what is evil and what is good. And He just said, this is how you'll behave because you represent Me. You're My set-apart, holy people. This is how you're to live. And it was different than the world around them. The Israelites found themselves at different points of history, living in, in different places as a people, under different rulers and foreign nations sometimes, in slavery. And in every case, they, they were set apart from the nation around them because they had a unique moral code. They obeyed God. And whenever there was a conflict between obeying God and obeying men, they were to obey God. So they had a unique moral code. They had unique worship. Their worship set them apart from the rest of the world. They had unique rituals and unique ways of celebrating their relationship with their Savior, their God. And so you know about the Old Testament. You've got this whole temple worship system and then the tabernacle worship system. And all of it was set up to be unique, to set them apart from the world around them. Because after all, they are a holy nation. Their worship was monotheistic. You know what that means, right? They worshiped one God. So many of the nations surrounding Israel were polytheistic. That is to say, they worshipped many gods. Or at least the worship of many gods was acceptable. But Israel was always set apart from that kind of a culture because they worshipped one God, the true God. So they were holy in that regard. They also had a unique loyalty. It didn't matter wherever they went or whatever piece of land they were living on or under what kind of rulership or the greater nation around them they lived under. Their loyalty Their ultimate loyalty was always to God. They belonged to Him. They were loyal to Him. And any other loyalty was secondary to that. They never saw themselves primarily as identified with the nation in which they lived. They always saw themselves primarily as identified with God. Because they were a holy nation. They were set apart for him. And Peter is saying to the church, the New Testament Christians, that that same description, that same identity marker marks you. 
Just as Israelites in the Old Testament were set apart for God in various ways, you are set apart from the world, and you are set apart for Him. To begin with, the church is set apart from sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and following. Paul writes this, he says, Or do you not know that the righteous, excuse me, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on to say, beyond that, and such were some of you. But, You were washed. You were sanctified. That word sanctified means set apart, just like holy nation does. You were sanctified. You were set apart. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Do you see what Paul's arguing? He's saying to believers, look, you used to fit in with the world. You used to live just like the world. You used to sin just like the world. And you used to get at it with the best of them. But that's not who you are anymore. Why? Because you've been set apart from the world. Something has transpired in your life. You've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you came to know Him, there was something new about your identity in Him. And that new thing is, you're not like the world. You're set apart from sin. You don't live the way the world lives. All those things you used to indulge in, you no longer indulge in. You've now been set apart from that. And you've been set apart for God and for His purposes. You don't live like the ungodly who don't know Him. You've been set apart for Him. You represent Him. You live for Him. And just like the Israelites in the Old Testament were not to look like the surrounding culture because they'd been set apart from God, there's a, there's a message for the Christian church in Peter's culture underneath the Roman rule in which they found themselves, and it's the same message that's for the Christian church in the United States of America in 2016. It's the same message. You are, if you're a Christian this morning, you are a part of a holy nation. And as a body of believers, we corporately are a holy nation. That is to say, individually and corporately, we have been set apart from the world and set apart for God. And and the result of that is we shouldn't look like the world around us. We shouldn't act like the world around us. We shouldn't behave like the world around us. We shouldn't speak like the world around us and think like the world around us and have the values of the world around us. Because we're a holy nation. Now, thankfully, that being set apart as a church in the New Testament, as a believer in the New Testament, doesn't come with a, a unique diet. That's good to know, right? We don't have to be kosher. But like Israel, we do have a unique moral code. We have the Word of God which defines for us right and wrong, which defines for us good and evil, which defines for us moral and immoral. None of those things for for the church, for a holy nation, for a a set-apart people, all of those things are are defined by what God has said, what God has said written in His Word. It's not defined for us by the greater culture around us. We don't sit around waiting for the Supreme Court to tell us what's right or wrong. We don't sit around waiting for some politician or some congressional bill to go through to help us understand what's moral or immoral. We don't wait for somebody out there in the culture to explain to us what's good and what's evil. We have the Word of God. God has told us these things, and He has etched them in stone for us. And the more the world around us begins to spin and turn and run in a divergent direction from the Lord, the more obvious that becomes. 
The more ungodly, the more unrighteous the world around us becomes, the more, the more clear it is that the church isn't a part of that, that we're set apart, that we're different. As the world gets progressively more evil, more immoral, more ungodly, it becomes obvious that the church is a holy nation, that it's set apart, or at least it should. At least it should. And frankly, the more faithful you are, the more faithful I am to God's Word on an individual basis, the more that's going to set us apart from the world around us. The more that's going to make people look at us and go, you know, what's, what's up with that guy? He doesn't, doesn't do what everybody else does. What's up with that gal? She doesn't, she doesn't use the same language that we all do here in the office. What's up with that fella? He doesn't go out and, on the weekends and he doesn't do the things everybody else does. What's up, what's up with that family? They, they like read the Bible at home and do devotions and things. They pray. Because we're a unique people. We've been set apart from the world. We've been set apart to God. And part of that is, is reflected in how we live, our moral code. We also have a unique worship, right? I mean, we, you're, you're doing something here this morning that most people in our culture are not doing. You realize that, right? Most people in our culture are not sitting in a chair looking at some guy on a stage talking about God. Most people are not sitting down and opening a Bible this morning and studying it. Most people are not gathered together with other people and singing strange songs like we just sang, right? No, most people don't do that. But the church does that. You know why the church does that? Because we're a holy nation. We're set apart from the world. We do things the world doesn't do. We're set apart for God. And so we worship Him. We honor Him. So we have a unique worship. We worship the one true God. We don't worship our money. We don't worship our wealth. We don't worship our power or our status or our beauty or our achievement. We worship God. We worship Him. We also, like Israel, have a unique loyalty. Israel had a unique loyalty to to God. And the church has a unique loyalty to Christ and to His kingdom first. You know, Peter mentions this in chapter 1, verse 1, when he refers to, his, to the readers of his letter as the elect exiles of, this, of the dispersion. He, he refers to them as exiles. And other translations translate that differently. Everything from aliens to foreigners to sojourners to pilgrims, all of those capture the same idea. Your people, your people who have a unique loyalty. And that unique loyalty is not first and foremost to the nation in which you live. That, that, that unique loyalty is to God and to His kingdom. Wherever you live, you may have some level of loyalty and some level of, of patriotism to that nation, but at the end of the day, you're an exile there. You're a sojourner. You're just somebody who's living for a period of time there. Your true citizenship is in heaven, and that's where your unique loyalty should lie, primarily. You realize this morning that the United States of America, although it's where we live, it's where most of us, I would imagine, in the room are citizens, this is not our true home. It's not our true home. If you're a Christian this morning, this is not your true home. It's where you live. It's where God's planted you to raise your family, to do your job, and to do the things that He set you out to do. But it's not your primary citizenship. As a Christian, our primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God, in a kingdom that's eternal, that doesn't end when time ends. It's a kingdom that doesn't rise or fall based on armies or invasions. This nation's not our true home, and it should never have a first of our loyalty. 
the first of our loyalty is to the kingdom of God and to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Everything else is secondary. It's perfectly fine to be patriotic. I'm a patriotic person. I serve my nation in the United States Navy, and I'm proud to do so. I'm grateful, as I mentioned last week, that I have the wonderful privilege of being able to live today in the United States of America where I can exercise the freedoms that come with being an American and so many other things that I think are helpful and good about our culture and wonderful. But my primary loyalty is not here. My primary loyalty is to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the kingdom of God. And as Christians, we better never get those two things confused. Ever. It's why as a church, by the way, we don't do patriotic services on a Sunday morning. It's not because we hate our nation, but it's because we never want to confuse the worship of the Lord with the celebration of a nation that's temporal. It's because Sunday morning is the Lord's day. It's not the nation's day. It's it's when we come together as the body of Christ to honor our king and to celebrate our citizenship in heaven. That's what we do on a Sunday morning. Anything less than that, anything less than that is that very thing. It's less than that and not worthy of our time on the Lord's day. There may be another time and another season to do such things, but not on the Lord's day, on the morning. Our primary loyalty is to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the kingdom of God because we belong to him. And His is an eternal kingdom. And there's going to come a day when your life is going to end and my life is going to end, whenever that day may come. And you know what? Our citizenship in this nation will make no difference in the world. The only thing that will matter is am I a citizen of the kingdom of God because I've placed my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I have, then my eternal home will be with Him in His kingdom. Until then, I'm an exile here. I'm a sojourner. I'm a pilgrim. I'm an alien. I'm a foreigner, as the New Testament calls it. We're set apart. We're set apart from the world. We're a holy nation, a holy people. What does that mean? Well, it means we, it means we, God has placed us in this world, but we're not of it. We live in it, but it doesn't capture our hearts. It doesn't capture our affections. It doesn't drive us to do what we do. And it's not primarily what identifies us as a marker in our identity. That's why John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and following, things like this, don't love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And he goes on to say why. All that's in the world, everything around us, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, sometimes translated the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father, it's from the world. And here he goes. And the world is what? It's passing away. It's passing away along with his desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world and everything in it, its treasures, its pleasures, its careers, its values, its lusts, its beauties, all of that stuff is at best temporary. It doesn't last. It goes away. But God's kingdom abides forever. We live in the world, but we don't fall in love with the world. We live here for a season, but we've been set apart for an eternal kingdom. And so this world cannot, it must not capture our hearts. It must not dominate our desires. It must not drive our actions. Those things should be set apart for the Lord. It should be the kingdom of God that captures our hearts. It should be the kingdom of God that dominates our desires, that drives how we act and what we say and what we do. This world's not our home. We are a holy nation. We are set apart for the Lord. That was so helpful to Peter's readers 
because they were in the midst of a, of a, a culture and a nation that was hostile to them at the moment, and they needed to be reminded, you know what? The world around you is hostile this morning or this day or this season. It's hostile and it's persecuting you, and they don't like you, and they're taking your stuff and threatening your lives, but it's okay. That's not your, your primary place anyway. You're just there for a little while because you're a holy nation. You're set apart from that, and you're set apart for God, and one day you'll be with Him forever. That's encouraging when life is going south. He goes on in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, to say something else about their identity. He says you're a holy nation, but you're also a people for his own possession. A people for his own possession. That is a, a fascinating statement. It speaks to two things. It speaks to the issue of ownership, and it speaks to the issue of, lo- of, of belonging. Belonging. He says it two ways. In verse 9, he says, you're a people for his own possession. And then over the next verse, in verse 10, he begins by saying, once you were not a people, but now you are what? God's people. In other words, he's saying, you belong to him. You're his. He owns you. So beyond the fact that you've been chosen, beyond the fact that you've been set apart, beyond the fact that you're identified as a royal priest for the Lord, the Lord owns you. You belong to Him. You are His possession. And not just any possession, you are His treasured possession. A a people for His own possession. Just as Israel in the Old Testament uniquely belonged to God, they were His people. He called them My people. And even when they were in rebellion against Him, you know what He kept calling them? Mine. You're mine. Even though you've rejected me, even though you're running away from me, even though you're sinning in grievous ways, you still are My people. Because they belong to Him. And it emphasized the special, unique relationship that God has with His people. And Peter here is borrowing again from the Old Testament, Exodus 19, verse 5. In the Old Testament, Exodus again, chapter 19. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, we just saw this, you shall be my what? My treasured possession. My treasured possession. You belong to me, and not only do you just belong to me, not only do I own you, but I own you and I hold you in ownership as a treasure. I I own you not like a slave driver drives a slave, but I own you as someone who, who holds a precious treasure that I love. This word possession here, it carries with it the idea of being bought back with a price. When he says, you're my possession, that word, it carries this idea that you belong to me because I've purchased you. You belong to me because I've bought you. Peter talked about this in in chapter, um, at the beginning of, or excuse me, the end of chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, when he says to them, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with what? The precious blood of Christ. You were ransomed. What is a ransom, right? You were ransomed. Somebody paid for you. And the payment to purchase you was the blood of Jesus. And the payee was the Father. Excuse me, the payer was the Father. You're His treasured possession. You belong to Him because He's bought you. He's bought you. I don't know how familiar you are with the Old Testament, but there's a wonderful illustration of this in the Old Testament book of Hosea. Hosea is a fascinating book in the Old Testament. It's short, but it's fascinating. Israel 
God's people were in deep rebellion against the Lord at the season in which Hosea comes onto the scene. And God calls this prophet Hosea to speak to his rebellious people. And he has to say to them some hard things. And the way God used the prophets in the Old Testament was he gave them messages to speak, but he also used their lives, their very lives, as a living illustration. And there's no better example of that than Hosea. And God wants to communicate to his people a very unique message. You know what that unique message is? You are my people, my beloved, and you're prostituting yourself with all the gods of the nation around you. So you know how he wants to, how he decides to communicate that to his people? You know how? In Hosea chapter 1, we're told, verse 2, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom. By forsaking the Lord. I hate that word, whoredom. Who uses the word whoredom? What were the ESV translators thinking? The NLT, the New Living Translation, says it more clearly. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, Go and marry a prostitute, so that she'll have some of her children who will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. How would you like to be that prophet? How would you like to get that directive from the Lord? Go marry yourself a prostitute who's going to keep cheating on you while you're married and who's going to have children to other men while you're married. Glad you're not a prophet. Glad you're not Hosea. You know, wouldn't sign, if we had a sign-up sheet for that ministry, nobody would sign up, right? But Hosea does. He obeys the Lord. And he marries this woman. Her name is Gomer. That should have been a sign right there, shouldn't it? He marries Gomer. And as the story plays out, it plays out exactly the way God said it was going to play out. Gomer marries Hosea. They have children, but she continues her, her stepping out, as the vernacular would be. Cheating on him, sleeping with other men. To the point where, as the story plays out, she ultimately leaves Hosea and moves in with another man. Leaves him all together, abandons her family, abandons Hosea and the children they have together, and she moves in with another man, totally rejecting him and the family. We can't even begin to understand what that must have been like for Hosea to walk through. But if you thought that was bad enough, when you get to chapter 3 of Hosea, verse 1, it's even more unbelievable what God asked that man to do. Chapter 3, verse 1, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So, Hosea says, I bought her. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and an omer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man so will I be also to you. Can you imagine being Hosea? And God says, Hosea, I want you to go, and I want you to purchase back your wife. You know the wife who left you? You know the wife who's cheated on you all these times? Who's moved in with another man and has now been abandoned by him? And is now on the public slave auction block for purchase? I want you to go and buy her back. And I want you to go and buy her back. 
And I don't want you just to buy her back as a slave in your house. He says, I want you to go find her once again. And what? And love her. I want you to take her back as your wife and love her as you did in the very beginning. Can you imagine being Hosea? God, are you kidding me? Do you know what that woman did to me? Don't you know the pain of her betrayal? Don't you know the grief of trying to raise these children by myself? And you want me to go buy her back? Yep, that's right. That's what I want you to do, Hosea. I mean, it's one thing for God to say, I want you to go find her and I want you to help her, right? That's another thing to say. I want you to buy her back and take her as your wife and love her. Go give her your heart again. Hosea just says, so I bought her. I mean, there's so much in that in between there. I can only imagine, right? Our imaginations can take us there. I, I bought her for 15 shekels. Well, when Hosea finds Gomer, she's being sold at an auction as a slave. And if you don't know what it was like to be sold as, as an, at an auction as a slave in Hosea's day, it was a humiliating, unbelievable experience. Her, her, her clothes would have been removed. She would have been taken and put on the auction block naked and exposed. And everyone would have been gathered around looking at her and sizing her up and determining what her value was. And the bidding would then begin. When if a woman could lose everything, Gomer's lost everything. Right? Naked, ashamed, exposed. To be purchased at the highest price. Whoever could purchase her could do whatever they wanted with her. No hope is where she found herself. Her lovers are gone. Her possessions are gone. Her food is gone. She's publicly humiliated. Her dignity is gone. She has no hope. Whatever life she has is going to be life of a servant to be used up by some man who bought her. And then all of a sudden, things change. Because through the crowd of bitters walks Hosea, this husband of hers. He no doubt wades through the crowd and walks up to the auction block. Everybody would have known him. He was a prophet of the Lord. The story wouldn't have been a secret, right? It would have been public what Gomer had done. He walks through. He looks upon his wife on the auction block. Can you imagine the indignity and the humiliation of that moment? But Hosea does it, and he bids for her. Somebody bids, he bids more. Somebody else bids, he bids more. He wins the auction at a price of 15 shekels of silver and some barley. It's not very much, so that tells you the value that was left in this woman when sold at the auction block, at least by the public. So he wins the bidding war, and now Hosea owns his wife. She now belongs to him. She's his property. He had, to, he had to publicly purchase what was his all along. And that's what he does. Surely everybody around him must have said, what a fool. This man's buying back his own wife. He takes her home. He, the picture is he takes her down from the auction block, probably puts some clothing of some sort over a naked body, and he likely carries her home. Carries her right through that crowd, walks back to wherever it is that he lives. And he says to her, I'm taking you back. You're mine. You belong to me. I'm going to love you again. You're going to be my wife. It's not going to be like it's been these years. I don't know what it would have been like to be Hosea 
But I can clearly imagine what it would have been like to be Gomer. To be on that auction block and realize life is over. I am used up, wasted, and worthless. And any hope I have for any sort of a future is only resting on what kind of a man will buy me and how he's going to use me. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden everything changes. And Hosea buys her back. And not only buys her back, but loves her. Loves her. Well, it's a story that's not just meant to capture our attention. It's a story that's meant to illustrate something. It's meant to illustrate how it is that Christians or Old Testament Israelites can be people of God's own possession. Because we, like Gomer, entrenched in our sin, dug a hole that we could never dig our way out of, exposed, embarrassed, humiliated, separated from our Creator with no possible way of ever belonging to Him. Except, except that He might walk through that crowd and walk to the auction block and pay something to purchase us back. The ones that He created, the ones that He lovingly breathed life into, who have rebelled against Him and chosen sin instead of choosing Him, the ones who belonged to Him in the beginning, He now has to purchase back at the price of the blood of His very own Son. And He's done that very thing. That's what Peter means when he says you were ransomed. And that's what he means when he says you are a people of God's own possession. God has loved you so deeply that in spite of your constant rebellion, he was willing to sacrifice his very own son to purchase you back. And not just to purchase you back as a slave, but to purchase you back that you might be his treasured possession. That he might pour out his love and his grace and his mercy on you and bless you and grant you eternal life with Him forever. That is, a, that is an amazing picture of the love of God. When Peter says to believers, and he says to you, you are a people of God's own possession. That's all captured in that phrase. He's saying, you are Gomer, and God has bought you back. And He loves you, and He treasures you, despite the fact that you've done everything you can to rebel against Him. the very own blood of his son, he bought us back. He bought us back. We belong to him. A people of his own possession. That's part of our identity. We were sinners who had rebelled against our Savior. We were sinners who had run from the God who created us and breathed life into us. And he has bought us back. And we belong to him. Can you, can you even fathom for a moment... What a wonderful thing it is to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know what? The world might not think much of me, but I am a treasured possession of my Creator. The world may hate me, but God loves me. He doesn't just love me because He has to. He doesn't just love me because He's God and that's what God does. He loves me because He treasures me to the point of paying a steep price that I might belong to Him forever. If you're a Christian this morning, that's who you are. You're a person of God's own treasured possession. 
And as a group corporately, he's saying to the church, church, this is who you are. You are a people of God's own possession. There was a time when you weren't a people, but now you are. There was a time when you didn't belong to God, when you were rebelling like Gomer, but now you've been redeemed. You've been purchased back and you're his people. You know what? There's nothing that says more about your identity than to say, I'm God's person. I belong to him. I'm his treasured possession. Treasured possession. That's a wonderful thing. Let me just finish up by saying this. If that doesn't help you understand your identity, then then think through it a little more. That's who you are. If you're a Christian this morning, if you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've done that, then you are all of those things to him. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priest. You've been set apart as a holy person for him and apart from the world. And you're, you're people who belong to him. He's purchased you and treasures you and has gone to great lengths to restore you and to grant you dignity in him. That's who you are. He finishes this section by simply saying, if that's who we are, what is it that we're here to do? And it's really obvious, so it doesn't need a whole lot of explanation. But in verse uh, verse 9, the second part, he says, You are all of these things that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Again, borrowing Old Testament language, he says, that's who you are. You're a chosen nation. You're holy priesthood. You're people of God's own possession. You're a holy nation. You are all those things, but you're all those things in order that you may accomplish your mission, which is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. Why? Who am I? Well, that's who I am. Why am I here? That's why we're here. That's why the church exists. That's why when you became a Christian, if you're a Christian this morning, God didn't zap you instantly to heaven, right? He could have done that, right? I I repent of my sin and I entrust my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Boom, gone, right? In some ways, we might think that'd be better. But that's not what he's chosen to do. Why? Because there's a mission to be accomplished here. And that mission, as Peter says, it is to proclaim the excellencies, proclaim, to publish abroad, to announce, to proclaim throughout excellencies, heroic deeds, mighty deeds. What is the mission of the church? It's to publish far and wide the mighty deeds of God. It's to tell anybody who will listen the heroic things that God has done. It's to publish for the world who God is and what he's done. That's the mission of the church. And that's ultimately the mission of every believer. Claiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's telling people how wonderful the God is who walked through the crowd and saw you on this slave trading block naked and hopeless and purchased you out. It's telling people how wonderful he is. It's trying to explain to them the depth and the richness of the kind of love that would do that for somebody who's done those things. It's proclaiming to the world what God in Christ has done for you and what he has done miraculously throughout the history of his interactions with his people. That encompasses two things. It encompasses worship. We gather for that purpose as a church to proclaim his excellencies. We sing songs about the wonderful, mighty deeds of God, right? We sing how wonderful he is and what he's done for us. And as we do that, we proclaim his excellencies. Worship is encompassed in that. But it's also going outside of these walls and talking to whoever will listen. And announcing who he is and what he's done.
And the reason we do that, we do that because He's called us out of darkness. And He's called us into His marvelous light. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, that's who you are and that's why you're here. There are other things you do in your life and there are other things that make you you, but those are the most important things right there. I mean, you have a job, you have a career, you have an ethnicity, you have affinities, you have hobbies. All of those things are part of your identity. But the thing that matters most about you is what Peter has said at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 9. You belong to Christ. You belong to Him. You've been set apart from this world for Him. You've been chosen by Him. You're His treasured possession. And He's left you here because there are people who don't know that wonder and that beauty and that experience who need to know. And He's given you the call and the task, and it's corporately the call and the task to proclaim that to the world. It's who you are, and that's why you're here. If there's other things that are driving your life, if there are other things that are capturing your affections, if there are other things that are driving your desires, apart from those things, you need to examine yourself this morning and ask yourself, what am I truly living for? Where do I truly anchor my identity? Is it in my job? Is it in my parenting skills? Is it in my beauty? Is it in my popularity? Is it in how other people think or feel about me? Or is my identity anchored in where I stand with the God who made me? And then secondarily, if you're a Christian this morning, you need to think through the question of how am I living out my mission? Whom have I lately, to whom have I lately proclaimed the excellencies of the one who called me out of darkness and brought me into his light? Simply put, Christian, when was the last time you told somebody about the Lord? When was the last time you told a neighbor or a friend or a family member or somebody that came across your path who was open to hear it. It's your mission. It's the mission of the church. Let's pray together. I ask you to bow your heads this morning. Close your eyes. If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, none of those identity markers apply to you, and that mission doesn't belong to you. But you're living for something this morning. And whatever it is you're living for is a faulty foundation that could be snatched out in a moment's time. You've got some other conception of who you are. But all that can change in a moment like it did for Gomer. All that can change in a moment like it did for Peter. Or like it's done for many in this room. And it changes in that moment when your eyes are open to see the reality of who the Lord Jesus Christ really is. That He's the Son of God who's come to you because you're a sinner who has, by choice, rebelled against your Creator, who, like Gomer, is hopeless and empty before God and has no hope except that Jesus Christ would die in your place and pay the penalty for your sin and offer to forgive you and grant you eternal life. And He's done that very thing. And right at this very moment, He stands at the doorstep of your life and He says, I'm here. Turn away from your sin and turn toward me. Submit your life to me and I will forgive you. I will forgive every single thing you've ever done. I will wipe the slate clean. I will give you a brand new identity. You'll become my treasured possession. And I'll set you on course for a new mission in your life. It's all free. It's all free except that you turn from your sin and run to Jesus. If you don't know Him this morning, I pray that you would. Lord Jesus... We stand in awe of your love. We stand in awe of your mercy. 
We stand in awe of Your grace. And Heavenly Father, that You would send Your Son to rescue us and to redeem us and even to begin to think that it's possible that we could belong to You. It's remarkable. It blows us away. We could never merit such a thing. We've never been good enough to earn that. But You've been gracious and You've been kind to us. And we are eternally grateful for that. For that man or woman who's here today and doesn't know You, Lord Jesus, I pray that they would come to know You right this very second. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.